Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I am Christian Leeds. I'm the pastoral intern here, and so I'm the ministry's coordinator, and I also get to preach a bit. So I'm very thankful and grateful for this opportunity. Uh, I am... A bit sick, I should say. So if I have to, like, cough or blow my nose or make horrendous sounds, I'm sorry. But it's, it's been a rough, like, week. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad it didn't turn into a sinus infection, which it almost did, but I'm prepared. So <clears throat> I'm excited to preach this morning about one of the better-known passages of Scripture that talks about what Christ did on the cross for us, as well as his exaltation. And this really is a beautiful passage that describes our Savior and what he had to do in order to save us. So let me just pray as we begin this morning. Father, I pray that you would be with us now as we turn to your word. Spirit be working in our hearts. Show us more of Christ's humility, what he did for us. Pray that we would be moved to worship you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so in our series, this Gospel and Life series, we've been learning about, uh, more about how the Gospel impacts every area of life, every facet of life. And today we come to the Gospel and community. How does the Gospel fuel community? Uh, how is the Gospel the dynamic, the dynamite that ignites true community? we'll find that the gospel brings us true humility, and from this humility flows real, genuine community. Let me move this over here. The gospel brings us true humility, and from this humility flows real, genuine community. In other words, staggering community, true community, is built on Christ's humility, and that's what Paul calls us to. Now, we want community. We value relationships, don't we? But how are we doing with that? Relationships are messy, 
uh, it can be hard to have lasting, genuine community. How can we love others? How can I really have true community? And that's what we're talking about here in Philippians 2. The true community that flourishes through Christ's humility. But we'll find that community isn't what we first think it is. True community, community that's built on Christ's humility, is outward-facing, not just inward-facing. In other words, we seek to love others, not just be loved. True community is more than just a social club. It's far more exciting, far richer, than just a collection of friends or a group of people who have a common hobby. So first, I want to look at what Paul's call to unity is. It's a call to true humility. Then I want to think about what humility is and why it's so important. And finally, I want us to see how we can get it. How can we be humble and have true humility, true community? So first, Paul's call to unity. Paul asked that we have the same mind and the same love, that unity would be one of the core qualities that characterizes the Christian church. And he goes on to speak more specifically what he means by having the same love and the same mind. He writes, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now let me just say, this is incredibly difficult to do nothing from rivalry or conceit. If I'm honest with myself, I know that I'm deeply, often motivated by rivalry, by selfish ambition. Um, so what does that look like? What does it look like to be motivated by conceit? It sounds kind of strange, um, so let me unpack it. I've just begun my first year of seminary, and at this point I'm pretty much like completely swamped in my reading, writing assignments, learning Greek. It's a lot of work, and it's, it's kind of fun. Uh, but wouldn't you know that the temptation to act from rivalry is constant at seminary. It's very frequent. So take my Greek class for an example. In Greek class, we often have to read Greek out loud. And I don't know if you've ever tried to learn a new language, um, but especially when you're just starting, you're learning the alphabet, the characters look different, you're learning how to sound out all the words. But when you're reading in class, you sound pretty stupid. <laughs> just sitting there, oh, no, that's not, that's like a P. I'm just completely wrong. Um, so I'm sitting there, and especially for me, um, the way that my work schedule and my class schedules line up I really don't have much time um, to study Greek during the week. And so when it comes time for my Greek class on Thursday, I'm, I'm really not prepared. Like, I can prepare over the weekend for my Monday class, but my Thursday class, I am just hopelessly lost. Uh, so it comes time for me to read, uh, and I'm sitting there struggling through a Greek sentence, like slowly reading it out loud. I'm, like, sounding pretty stupid, messing up all the letters and things. Well, then it's the next guy's turn. When you know he's, like flying through the Greek. Like, I wonder if he actually is Greek, or, like, did he take Greek before? Like, how, how is he reading it so quickly? I'm just sitting there stewing. Uh, so what do I start to do? I start to think, well, he probably doesn't have to work like I do. He probably doesn't have a job. He, he's probably just a you know, full-ride scholarship, doesn't have to work at all. He's probably not married like I am. Okay, actually, let's be honest, he's probably just some loser who only does Greek all day. Like, if I had more time, if I wasn't, like, I would be so, I would be way better than him. Absolutely. Right? And then what happens when I study on the weekend? I'm thinking about that guy who's better than me. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got to show him up. I've got to be better than him. I 
just wait till that test. I'm going to show. He's just going to be. I'm just going to maybe like put it over so he can see my grade. You know, just, just wait till the test. Well, what happened to me? I was completely motivated by conceit and selfish ambition. And you can see so clearly all the attempts to puff myself up to justify my behavior in my life. And in that moment, I'm not resting in Christ, and I certainly, needless to say, I don't have his heart of humility. Um, in that moment, I want to do well not out of a desire uh, to try my hardest or thank God for this opportunity to be in seminary. I really just am motivated out of rivalry. I want to do better than that other guy. I'm jealous of him. I'm selfishly conceited. But Paul calls us to humility and to do nothing from rivalry or conceit. He tells us to count others as more significant than ourselves, to look to their needs in addition to our own. In other words, Paul is calling us to live practically a life of humility. We cannot think that we are humble um, simply because we are Christians who have humbled ourselves before God. Paul is saying that we must treat other people uh, with significance and dignity, that our actions towards other people must flow from a humble heart and mind. It's incredibly difficult to put, our, to put others before ourselves, but it's absolutely, absolutely essential for a Christian walk. I want to read from a book by Andrew Murray, a Christian author and pastor um, who lived in the 19th century. This is from his book on humility. He writes, It is easy to think we humble ourselves before God. Humility towards men will be the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. The insignificances of daily life are the importances and tests of eternity because they prove what really is the spirit that possesses us. It is in our most unguarded moments that we really show and see what we are. Our lack of humility shows us the true state of our hearts. If I'm jealous and act out of rivalry in my Greek class, that's not merely an action that I need to change or just get better at. The jealousy and conceit that bubble up from deep within me show a deep insecurity, show an idol that I'm living out of, just like we talked about last week. Now these reactions of jealousy and conceit reveal the idol of perhaps mastery of what I put my hands to or being the best at what I do. There could be a variety of reasons or idols that cause conceit, selfish ambition to bubble up in each of you, Um, and it's worth thinking about what causes you to be jealous? You know, when you flare in rivalry and start to justify yourselves, why is that? What's, what is that idol there? It could range from an idolatry of work to an idolatry of body image. Needless to say, this bitterness and jealousy are not what Paul calls us to. Paul calls us to unity and to true humility. So we've seen what Paul is calling us to. Um, we're not to act out of jealousy or rivalry, but we're to have true humility. He tells us to consider others as more significant than ourselves. But these commands have some prerequisites, something that comes before he gives the command. And uh, so we should look at that. This is in verses 1 and 2. Let me read from there. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. I think this is actually pretty important. Uh, I think he starts off with this for two reasons. The first reason is to say, have you felt any of these things? Is there even a hint of encouragement, of comfort from love? Have you even had just a small amount of affection or compassion because of your faith and walk with God? If there's even a speck of these things, 
then press onward. Be encouraged and move forward with your faith. By the power of the Spirit working in you, you can be humble. You can press onward. But the second reason is to say, you must seriously consider whether or not you have felt any of these things. What does your faith consist of? Do you have any encouragement in Christ? Or only discouragement, if not a speck of hope? Have you experienced walking with the Spirit, being led in prayer and assured of uh, your status as a child of God? Are you led to compassion for others and affection because of your faith? Are you a Christian? This is not to inspire unnecessary doubt or to make people who are struggling with real doubts or with depression to to question their salvation and their faith. Um, And that's why the first reason is given first. We can be assured that even if there is only a speck of faith, that Christ does hold on to us. He is faithful and he will not let us go. But we must seriously consider whether or not we have encouragement in Christ, participation in the Spirit, or affection and sympathy. We must ask if we are Christians. Why? Why does he say these things in verses 1 and 2? Why does he start with that? If we don't have these things, if there's not even a speck of hope, if there's only discouragement, or if you know that you're not a Christian today, um, then you can't even think of trying to accomplish what Paul is calling us to without first being right with God. Christianity is not a to-do list of things that make us better people. Paul isn't calling us to community simply because that's a good trait to have, like it's a good thing to aspire to. And furthermore, Paul is not saying you must be of one mind and one spirit or Christ will not love you. Right? He, he says the opposite. He asks, are you a Christian? Do you have any encouragement in Christ already? If you are saved, then complete my joy. Salvation in Christianity is based on what Christ has done for us, not what we do. We're, we're not saved only if we are unified and humble. We needed to be humble, and so Christ was humble for us. We aren't unified, we're divisive. So Christ came and united us to the Father. So Paul is saying, only if you are a Christian, then complete my joy. That order cannot be reversed. We can't complete his joy and do what he's asked without first knowing God and believing in his Son, Jesus Christ. So we've looked briefly at what Paul calls us to, a unity of mind and humility that considers others as more significant than ourselves. And we've seen the fact that we must be saved before we can try to do what he's calling us to. Now I want to think about why are humility and unity so important? Why do these things complete Paul's joy? Of all all the things, why these? And to begin thinking about these questions, I want to talk more concretely about what humility is. So let's go back to the text. What is humility? In verse 3, Paul writes, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, or selfish ambition as it's listed there, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Humility, then, is the manner in which we count others as more significant than ourselves. It has to do with a mindset, a way of the heart, a disposition. So what is that disposition? Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself in a sort of depressive or self-deprecating way. Humility does not consist in beating yourself up, but rather it involves thinking of yourself less. It consists of self-forgetfulness, the ability to stop thinking about yourself and instead think and care about others. Humility isn't the self-denial for the sake of self-denial. The goal of humility, rather, is to love, uh, love God and love others 
by thinking of others as more significant than ourselves. Humility, then, isn't focused on the self, but on other people. Another way of saying it is, humility is the loss of the need for recognition and approval, the loss of the need for status and recognition that are so often valued by our world. And isn't this essential for real community when you think about it? In order to really care, to truly care about someone else, you have to forget about yourself. We have to lose ourselves. We're not really focused on the other person. But this is difficult. Why? Why can't we just get beyond ourselves and think about someone else? Why can't we just love others? Well, if we aren't resting in God, if we aren't satisfied with Him, in other words, if we still need recognition from the world, if we still rely on and find comfort in what other people think of us, then we'll never be humble. We'll never be able to get beyond ourselves. Look, we all desire recognition, don't we? We often find ourselves thirsting for the praise of our work, the praise of the work of our hands. We want someone to notice us. And that's what I wanted for my Greek class, wasn't it? I wanted praise and recognition. And when I didn't get it, I resorted to selfish ambition, to rivalry and conceit. We fear mediocrity, uh, to learn that our lives have been for nothing. And I think in some ways our technological age that's so saturated with social media really lends itself and feeds our selfish ambition, these, these dreams of egoism. Why do we only post the best things about ourselves on Facebook and shudder when someone posts a bad picture of us? Do you ever catch yourself contemplating the best possible wording for a tweet? Or actually going around and thinking of how to phrase our experiences so that we can share them online? What are we doing? We're seeking after recognition and praise. Yeah, exactly, the hashtag video. That's right. Exactly, it's absurd. Uh, what are we doing? We're seeking after recognition and praise. We want to be told that we matter, that we are witty, right? That's what hashtagging is often about. We want to be told that we matter, that we are praiseworthy. But we find that whatever we look to for recognition, whatever we want to praise us, can't bear the weight that we're putting on it. When we long for recognition and put the stake of our comfort in something other than God, that thing becomes an idol, like we've been talking about. And so Facebook and the lure of internet fame will always disappoint us. If we live for the praise of our boss, whenever that praise eventually comes, it never seems to fulfill us like we thought it would. Or maybe we perform hidden tasks, things that nobody sees, but internally we desperately long for someone to say, oh, who did that? Did you do that? We crave recognition, but when it comes, it never was quite as good as we thought it would be. We're let down because these things can't bear the weight of our existence. If I let my jealousy of my classmate in Greek dictate my behavior, what will become of me? I will long for the title of best at Greek, which I will never achieve. Like, I will actually will never achieve that title. It's just, it's not going to happen. But even if I did achieve it, it wouldn't fill me up like I think it will. It won't deliver on what it's promised me. Only when we humbly trust God and focus on Him instead of ourselves can we find rest and true comfort. Only He is grand enough to quench our insatiable thirst for, for recognition, this thirst that causes us to live with such jealousy, such selfish ambition. But when we are resting in Him, suddenly we are enabled to love others, to consider them better than ourselves. When we rest in God, we're freed to love others. Why? Because we're given the very humility of Christ. 
Only then can we have self-forgetfulness. And this moves us to love others. And out of this, true community is born. So humility, as we've been saying, is thinking about ourselves less, or self-forgetfulness. But humility is not complete loss of the self. And here we see some of the balance, really some of the nuance of the Christian faith. Paul writes that we should look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is not a call to utter loss of the self, or a completely extreme call to neglect yourself entirely, just so that you can think about someone else. The Christian faith is far more balanced and nuanced than that. Humility is not complete loss of the self, and we can see and understand this more clearly if we juxtapose and compare Christianity to another major world religion, such as Hinduism. Uh, Many Eastern religions, such as Hinduism, do end with loss of the self, so I want to briefly look at at Hinduism. I know that's a large category that many things are underneath of, but I think we can still briefly speak about Hinduism. What Hinduism aims at is a complete swallowing of the self with Brahman. In Hinduism, the goal is to be free from the cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth. When you are free from the cycle, you achieve moksha, and the self is completely lost or absorbed in Brahman, which is the highest good, Brahman's the supreme soul. So in Hinduism, salvation is when your soul is finally lost and absorbed in the supreme soul. But I don't think these beliefs can bear the test of experience of life here on earth. And Christianity says nothing like ultimate loss of the self or obliteration of who you are. In Hinduism, the self is swallowed up into oblivion. But in Christianity, you never lose your identity and who you are. If you believe in Christ, then one day you will see him as he is and you will be, finally, who you were truly meant to be. But on this earth, we do crave recognition because we are, in fact, made in the image of God. We do have dignity as humans who are made in his likeness. And this is why we crave such recognition and praise. We know that we are deserving of respect, but we simply seek it in the wrong ways. See, because we are fallen and sinful, we are severed from God, and so we seek recognition apart from him. But this inherent dignity that we sense, we know that we are worth something, that our lives must have meaning. This dignity is lost in Hinduism and other Eastern religions. Those religions can't address this deep longing in human nature for recognition. But Christianity does answer this longing. We are satisfied when we know that we are loved deeply by God. Only then, once we know that we are valued by the creator of all things, only then are we freed to turn and in love, in humility, return to our neighbor and love them. Being lifted up and valued by God in Christianity leads to humbly loving others. But this turning to others and humbly loving them, this is difficult, as we've been saying, It seems impossible. This idea of thinking of yourself less and serving others is in opposition to what we've been taught, what we've inculcated from our culture. It doesn't really sound appealing at all. So, we need to identify what we've absorbed from our culture and seek understanding in order to see how the gospel and Christianity speak to these issues. And to do this, I want to look at the writer Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand was a popular novelist of the 20th century and founder of the philosophy called objectivism, which has had a great influence on American culture, even if you're unfamiliar with it or don't know the philosophy by name. It's still impacted us greatly uh, as Americans. Objectivism has impacted us. Now, Ayn Rand writes against humility 
and against selflessness in her bestseller, Atlas Shrugged. And so I want to read briefly from there, from Galt's speech. Now, it's a bit heady. It's kind of dense. <clears throat> it's only two short paragraphs. Uh, so try to stick with me, and I will try to tie it all together. She writes, <clears throat> The first precondition of self-esteem is that radiant selfishness of soul which desires the best in all things, in values of matter and spirit, a soul that seeks above all else to achieve its own moral perfection, valuing nothing higher than itself. The proof of an achieved self-esteem is your soul's shudder of contempt and rebellion against the role of the sacrificial animal, against the vile impertinence of any creed that proposes to immolate the irreplaceable value which is your consciousness and the incomparable glory which is your existence to the blind evasions and stagnant decay of others. For Rand, humility and selflessness are actually great evils. In our American culture, we have believed, and here Rand teaches, that we must not be selfless or value others above ourselves. Instead, Rand would say that we must be selfish. We must fight for ourselves, defend our honor, work for what you get. We have to earn it. Rand wants to abolish any belief system that seeks to immolate the irreplaceable value of your consciousness and the incomparable glory of your existence. In other words, Rand wants to abolish religions that call for a complete loss of the self. But this is not what Christianity calls for. Christianity does not call for complete loss of the self like Hinduism requires. In Christianity, there is not an immolation of our consciousness or an obliteration of our existence like Rand is afraid of. Rather, in the gospel, we are both known and loved by God. We are given a greater dignity by him than we can ever obtain on our own in this world because God adopts us and he brings us into his very family. We become his children. But this dignity and assurance of God's love moves us, moves us to humility, not to self-righteous pride, because God has given us Christ's humility. We haven't earned it at all. We are not the humble ones. Christ is. And we're saved by him. Therefore, in Christianity, we're both dignified and humbled. And the result is that, paradoxically, we're incredibly encouraged and assured of who we are, while at the same time forgetting about ourselves so that we can freely love others. And this is why humility is so important. When we have Christ's humility, we can love others because we are assured of God's love for us and we are self-forgetful. This is the only way we can have deep community where we're actually loving each other. And isn't that more fulfilling than just joining a social club? We as God's people are united deeply by Christ's death on the cross. When we know that we are saved by God, we will have Christ's humility and we will engage in true community. Now, being a part of true Christian community is a good thing. We're called to be unified and to be in community with one another. That's one reason why our home meetings are so vital. It's opportunities to join in fellowship, um, in community, and to deepen those friendships. And that's really where change happens, where people can know you and speak into your life. That's where we join in each other's lives, through the good and the bad. Now, we know that we're not in community only for ourselves, but we're also not in community only for each other. We're also in community for our neighbors, the very city of Philadelphia. Community is tied to our outreach. Deep, genuine friendships that center around God are means for an effective witness in the world. Let me unpack this a bit. 
So in John 17, during Christ's high priestly prayer, we can see the importance of unity and community that Paul is calling us to. In John 17, we read this. This is Jesus speaking. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Christ prays that all people who believe in him would be one together and one with him so that the world may believe that God the Father sent Christ into the world. Our unity and our community then are tied to our effective witness in the world. And this is also why in the book of James, his language is so strong when he's rebuking the church for their fighting and their quarreling. James in chapter 4 writes this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do not, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. I mean, that's pretty strong language. Like, can you, like, getting that letter, you're like, oh, good to hear from you again, James. Nice to hear us that we're adulterous people. Uh, like, how can James call them that? How can he say, you adulterous people? Well, it's because they aren't unified. They don't have one mind, which is pretty clear from that passage. They're fighting and they're quarreling. But this is more than just an internal dilemma to be resolved. It also affects their witness in the world. It goes directly against what Christ prayed for in John 17. Instead of quarreling and fighting, we as followers of Christ are called to community that flows from his humility. Let me read again from Andrew Murray in his book on humility. The humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised and himself forgotten, because in God's presence he has learnt to say with Paul, I am nothing. Paul had received the spirit of Jesus, who pleased not himself and sought not his own honor as the spirit of his life. Can we imagine such a community filled with believers who are truly humble? Like Murray says, we will only have a community like this if we receive the spirit of Christ, who, who pleased not himself and sought not his own honor. Such a community would be radically countercultural. The individuals in it would necessarily make an impact in all their areas of life, all their spheres, everything that they're a part of. This would be a powerful and a staggering community. Can you imagine with me what it would look like for you as a humble Christian to tangibly love your neighbor? Even just to listen to your neighbors on your block when they talk to you and ask them questions that show them you really care about them. You, you want to hear what they have to say and how they're doing. What if we didn't just turn conversations to show the best things about ourselves? What if in humility we could forget about ourselves and turn our full attention to the other person? Our neighbors would notice. They would feel cared for, loved. They would wonder, what's different about that person? And isn't that what you long for? For your neighbors to see Christ in you and to ask about our faith? Or what if in the middle of this entire debacle with our Philly public schools, uh, we acted in humility by speaking with gentleness and respect. Instead of letting ourselves be worked up into a rage and speaking out of rivalry and conceit, 
What if we rested in God and spoke out of humility? If you're a teacher, do you think the other teachers would notice if you acted in this way? Paul's desire for the Philippians is that they would have lasting community. And the key ingredient for a Christian community is the humility of Christ, the ability to forget about yourself and tangibly love your neighbor. Paul desires that we would emulate our Savior, the one who truly had a mind and a heart of humility. How do we get humility? How do we get Christ's humility? By gazing at his work for us on the cross. Let's look at him together in verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses are widely recognized actually as being an early uh, Christian hymn. That's what Paul's quoting to the people is a hymn that they probably would have known. Um, These verses really do contain the beauty of our salvation, of what Christ did for us. We read that Christ made himself nothing and took the form of a servant, of man. So first, what does it mean for the one who is God to take on the form of a man? It's staggering to think that the one who is God, who is perfect in every way, the one who has lived forever and who actually is outside of time himself, one of my favorite songs is um, The Ageless One in Time's Embrace. It's astounding. He is the one who should be praised. He's the one who should receive all of our adoration, all of our affection. And this is the one who became a man. God shoved into the tiny little body of a human baby, completely helpless, relying on human parents to raise and nourish him. We should, every time we see a new baby boy, we have a couple in our church right now, we should think, Christ became that little boy. He was like him. He was small. He relied on his parents. Now, I know in artwork, Christ is often depicted as a child who never cried or as an alert little six-month-year-old uh, baby who is, like, reaching out to bless the people of the painting. Um, and certainly, we do believe that he was perfect. Uh, but let's be honest for a moment. Christ, God, who became man, had to have his first-century diaper changed, right? And that's pretty pretty down to earth. It says God as man. Look at that humility. Look at his humility. Christ is the one who is truly humble. He is our humility. And secondly, I want to point out um, that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't reach for or hold on to his status as God. Even though he was God, he did not exploit the standing. Instead, he became a man. Now, there was at one time in history a man and a woman who were faced with a similar situation. Two people were in a garden, and they had a specific temptation brought before them. What did the the devil say to Adam and Eve? That if they took the fruit, they would be like God. 
And as they fell into temptation, they ate the fruit and grasped to be like God. They were created by God, and God had told them not to eat of the fruit of that tree, but they reached for the fruit in order to be like God. Christ, we see, did the opposite. See, Adam and Eve were mere humans who tried to become like God, but Christ, who is God, became a man. It's the great reversal of history. And not only this, but Christ humbled himself even to death on a cross. It's remarkable enough that Christ, who is God, became a man, but that he should die for us is unthinkable. Do you see it? In humility, Christ left the perfect community. He left the complete love, contentment, comfort that he had with the Father and the Spirit so that you could be brought into true community. He left his father and became a man so that you could become the father's child. He was cast out so that you could be brought in. Now you have fellowship with God and with each other. Only when we look uh, and see Christ, the one who was cast out for us, the one who has now been exalted because of his death for us, only when we see him will we find the joy, really the awe, to dare to be humble. When our hearts have been taken up by Christ's love, by his humility, we will be free to be humble as he is and to join in true, powerful community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I believe that flowing out of this community, this kind of community, will be genuine friendship and selfless love for our neighbors and the people of this city. And maybe one day, when we stand in that place, in heaven, Jesus' name is declared, and we bow our knees and confess that he is Lord, maybe next to us will be our very neighbors, the people of this city, praising Christ. But for now, we have community with each other here on this earth. This community can only flourish if at the core, at the center, is Christ's humility. When we take on his humility, we will be able to love others as he has loved us. How do we get humility? How do we get Christ's humility? We must see how Christ emptied himself completely. He was completely humble for us, and the Father exalted him. Now we can dare to be humble because we know that we have been brought in by the Father. We are his children. This week, watch your life and see when you are acting from rivalry, conceit, and selfish ambition. Think Think about what's bringing you to that place. But instead of fighting for yourself, and grasping for recognition, think of Christ and his wonderful humility, his death, and his love for us. Instead of turning inward, be moved to joyful community because of Christ's humble love. Please pray with me. Jesus, we do thank you for your outrageous act of love, your humility. We thank you for your death on the cross, that you became a man. For the joy set before you, you became a man and died for us. You brought us in. I pray that we would look to you, turn to our brothers and sisters in joyful community, join in you with fellowship, and love the people of of this city. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.